Welcome to the BMJ podcast. In the podcast, we've talked a lot about improving quality of care and supporting doctors to practice their best medicine in a patient-centered way. We've also talked about global disparities in health and how can individual countries create healthcare systems that are best for them. All of those topics come together in this podcast. I'm Emma Veach, Collections Editor for the BMJ, and today we're going to talk about quality of care in resource-constrained settings and the challenges of demanding that patients have access to medical resources and the type of care that meets their needs. To talk about that, I'm joined by three experts in quality of care. Keith, can I come to you? Um, Good day to everyone. Um, My name is Keith Cloutier. I am um, the head of the Western Cape Department of Health and Wellness. We are one of the nine provinces in South Africa. My specific background is I'm a medical doctor that's worked in the public health sector in the Western Cape for the last 30 years. Paul, can I ask you to introduce yourself and how you're coming to this topic? Hello, um, I'm Paul Jani Eju. Um, I'm currently a health specialist with UNICEF Ghana. And in this role, I support with overall health system strengthening in the country. But prior to this, I had worked as a technical lead for quality of care for maternal, newborn, and child health with the World Health Organization country office in Ghana. But I'm primarily a medical uh, a clinician who also worked in health facilities um, in quality improvement systems. Fantastic. Thank you, Paul. Nana, we'd love to hear how you're coming to this topic. Thank you, Emma. Um, so I'm also a physician, preventive medicine and public health by training. Um, I've been working in um, health policy, practice, uh, research, evaluation and learning for more than 20 years. Um, with respect to quality improvement, I've been working in this field for about a decade and a half um, across multiple countries in Africa, including my own Ghana, as well as countries in South Asia and Latin America. Um, currently, I'm the senior vice president at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement (IHI's) mission is to improve health and healthcare worldwide. And we use quality improvement methods as our core approach to uh, working with um, health systems around the world. We have an entire collection on the challenges of improving the quality of care. Keith, can I start with you to talk a bit more about the challenges in your setting in South Africa? So one of the bigger challenges, there are, let's call it a logic that if not constantly tended to, can become quite a a rigid system of delivery healthcare onto people. So person-centered or people-centered care basically challenges the notion of predictable, rigid systems that's geared towards the provider's needs rather than the person that's being cared for needs. So our investment in the capability is beyond just capability for research, beyond just capability for data analytics. It is capability for user design, 
but mainly it is capability for agility and adaptiveness. So being really patient-centered, that's a really key challenge. Nana, I know you've been thinking about something a little bit different when it comes to considering people's people-centeredness. Having worked with so many uh, frontline clinicians and managers and you know, leaders within the system, I think my view of person-centered care has broadened beyond the patient. I think we need to include the workforce in that because the workforce at multiple levels of the system are also struggling to achieve their goals. And oftentimes the systems that they're in aren't designed for them. Is the health system designed to help people look at their processes, how they are doing on a daily or weekly or monthly basis. But to do all of that, you need data. And currently, a lot of our data systems are aggregated um, and reported only on a monthly basis. What the clinicians need is not last month's data. They need yesterday's data to know how to do better, or they need the previous shift's data. So I think some of it is that some of the clinicians that uh, we would like to deliver better quality care actually hampered by, by lack of real-time data that's high quality, that's at their fingertips, that they can see on a wall, on a screen, in their, in their area of work that they can act on. And in many African countries, and many sub-Saharan African countries, let me be specific, um, the health information system doesn't include an electronic medical record where you can look at individualized um individualized uh, patient data electronically. We're still very much dependent on paper systems. And paper systems um, are hard to get real-time data for analysis for action very quickly. Paul, we've talked with Nana and Keith about the challenges of measurement and data and rigidity of healthcare systems, but you've got a slightly different perspective. You've been doing a lot of work in community engagement and developing panels to try to feedback from the community into hospitals. Can you talk to us about that? I think one of the the challenges in measuring patient-centered care is the measurements. For Ghana's community scorecard, um, there are nine indicators that um, have been selected. And these indicators look at um, um, waiting time, availability of medicines, um, provision of respectful and compassionate care, um, issues on general cleanliness and wash services. So these nine indicators fall within this category of about four broad themes that I've mentioned. Now, they are, they are standard measures within Ghana's framework of quality, quality, um, quality improvements, of course. And the other aspect of it is the subjectivity of responses. Now, these committee, uh, management co- uh, committee members are inside the community. They get the feedback of the mother who was who lost a child. They had the feedback of the of the old woman who came to the health facility and did not get medications. So when they, they come into the facility, the feedback is subjected. However, it's critical that we get this feedback because that's the only way to receive the the, the response from the from the from the community members. So these are some of the challenges with the measures. And the, and the feedback that comes with it. But um, to make it very easy, it has to be synthesized, you know, to the level where they understand it so they can assess the facility by the indicators and provide the feedback into the digital system. So we've talked around some really high-level ideas that are 
potentially barriers to quality of care. And I just want to focus in on one real life example, something that came up in this collection. That's around the use of oxytocin to reduce postpartum bleeding. So for this, there's very clear WHO quality guidelines, which measure how much we're using oxytocin after birth to try to reduce excessive bleeding in resource constrained settings. And then in richer settings, um, you've got guidelines which support more individual choice around that particular intervention. And that just leads me to think about the tension. Are we pushing in two different directions on that issue? Is there a risk of being less woman-centred around healthcare in the settings that you're working in because we're driving towards trying to achieve better clinical outcomes, which is lower bleeding risk? Nana, that's a big question. And you've got a foot in both more and less well-resourced settings, and perhaps you could start. My experience is that, yes, they are. The difference, and I was thinking about uh, the example of birthing positions um, or even birthing companions. So there's, 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 I'm not an obstetrician gynecologist, and I don't need to be. I just need to understand that there are standards of care for what is safe for birthing positions and what is safe for when people are in labor and waiting to birth, you know, should they be, should they be stuck in a bed or should they be allowed to walk around, go home and come back? So, so I think that's where the person-centeredness, patient-centeredness comes in, regardless of where you are in the world. Um, <clears throat> in, some, in some cultures, peop- women prefer to squat to birth because it is faster, more efficient to get the baby out in a squatting position than lying on your back. And so the question then is, is it safe? And can we do it? Can we do it in our particular facility? Do we have, do the midwives have the, the, the equipment or the, the mats, whatever it is on the floor that women can squat to, to, to deliver their babies? In some settings when that has been tried, the midwives have told us that they're too old they have lower back issues, they can't bend down to catch the baby. So then we end up planning the birth around the midwife's preferences rather than the mother's or the family's preferences. There are some settings where women do want their partners to come into the, into the labor room with them, but the, the setting in which the labor is, being, is happening is not private. So there might be four or five women in labor at the same time, in which case it makes it very difficult for everyone's partner to come in because of a private setting. But if there's a private room, then of course, the woman can choose to have her partner join her during the labor process. So what, what we've seen is that, you know, human beings were so different and we all have strong preferences and culturally, individually as a family. And I think that the, the, the need for person-centered care, um, we've seen in high-income countries, middle-income countries, and low-income countries, um, there are some settings where people really um, really pride the hotel services. You know, the quality of care for, for patients is about the, the environment, the, you know, how clean the place is, whether they got tea or water while they were waiting, uh, whether, um, whether their flowers are the bedside. Other places, that's not as important to them. So I, I don't think the person-centeredness as a principle, varies by context. I think whether we, the providers, we, the people in the system, are willing to ask and willing to respond to them is really the question. Yeah, so, so it's a very interesting question. I mean, I was, uh, in one of my capacities, 
previously approached by medical students that goes to maternity units and observe and in their medical training come across the phenomenon that the midwives are harsh in the way that they handle the process of birth. And out of that whole process, we developed a patient-centered maternity care approach. And we've implemented that for the last six, seven years. It is one of those very difficult contexts where if people are delivering babies in high volume units, and this comes back to the disparity of resources rather than the disparity of choice or practice. And you are under pressure to deliver somebody that's at risk. The healthcare provider for their logic at that moment I have to save the baby and I have to save the mother. It's almost like they're dispensing at that moment choice and compassion because they move into an emergency frame. Now, obviously, the person that is receiving the care, and it's a young, especially if it's a young mother that gives birth, her experience is traumatic. So we've gone through this for a for a while, uh, for quite a while. And recently I chaired, as recently as last week, I chaired a meeting and people share their practices of what they've done innovatively. And I was so heartened by a obstetrician gynecologist working in a very high pressured area. And she said the simple thing, Nana, and I think you will appreciate this. She said, I have to think of myself, I gave birth as an obstetrician. The most important thing for me is, did I have a choice in my pain control? So out of all of those, with patient-centered maternity care, we now have an innovative practice where they've gone back and checked what was pain control in that entire process. And we are now starting a process of saying, actually, just because we are in a resource-constrained environment doesn't mean that mothers or pregnant mothers that's giving birth has no choice in terms of pain control. So it is in this context that we are adjusting and moving along. And for me, it was just a very interesting and heartwarming experience five, six years later after the maternity code, patients in maternity code, that a clinician just says, look, just look at pain control ask the, 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 the mothers, even if you're in a public sector, high-pressured area, introduce pain control, introduce patient-initiated pain control, and we're going to go for it. And it doesn't mean that in our context we cannot do that. I'll just use that as an example. So um, we did a work that we, we sought to, to break down the whole patient-centered care approach. And as you know, patient-centered care has two components, the patient's experience of care and the patient's satisfaction of care. And um, we collected data from postnatal uh, mothers, more like an exit interview, to assess what was your experience and whether you are satisfied. Right? Experience of care is more like the processes and then uh, patient satisfaction is like the outcome of, of the whole 
patient-centered spectrum. Now, it's interesting to note that there are still inequity issues, and there are issues that relate with patient empowerment. And so whether, no matter how much has been researched and published from global standards to inform quality of care, how we bring this down to the patients informs a lot. For example, we had um, in that um, research or kind of data collection, we had as much as um, um, quite a number of mothers who were more treated. By, more treat, uh, by being more treated, we, we looked for whether they were, they, were, they were slapped, they were pinched, they were scolded, they were shouted at, they were mocked and all of that. And although they indicated that they had a poor experience of care in terms of more treatment, and some of them don't have wash facilities to take a bath within 24 hours of birth and all that, yet they still said they were satisfied. Now in this work, we measure satisfaction by whether they will recommend the facility to another woman or whether they will come back again. And it's just thought that yes, we'll come back again to it. And so we realize that we have people normalizing even more, um, um, more treatments and all of this. And, and it has to do with empowering women and dealing with inequity issues because otherwise, as far as they are concerned, it is having a baby that is, that is okay for them. But we know that quality of care goes beyond more than a woman just having a baby, you know. So um, I think that health systems have to pay attention to empowering mothers and patients and really putting them at the center of care and letting them be the drivers of the kind of quality they receive as much as possible. Listening to Paul's example about the maltreatment, it, it makes me think about um, the, the ecosystem that Keith mentioned. My, my experience in maternal, especially maternal health, where so many women, especially young women, complain about being treated poorly, either verbally or physically. I think a lot of it is a reflection of the culture, I have to say. Um, you know, where, where we find that the providers, the healthcare providers, are similar to the patients they're serving, you don't get as many of those complaints. Where there's some kind of um, inequity in society, and that inequity is reflected in the patient-provider dynamic, you basically get exactly what's happening in society, happening in the health system. And that's not surprising because we, the providers, are from the society. You know, in rural areas, and um, I think Paul will, Paul will probably uh, resonate with this, in many rural areas of Ghana and other countries, the providers, they aren't necessarily from those communities. They are coming from far, especially uh, more, more advanced professionals like midwives and doctors. So sometimes there's a disconnect, either cultural, language, or a, a, a socioeconomics. And unfortunately, the socioeconomic difference between provider and patient exacerbate some of the, the, the basic decency of interaction, you know, even uh, greeting them, introducing yourself by name. Hello, I'm Dr. Blah, blah, blah. Or, Hello, my name is... It's basic, but it matters to human beings as a whole. And if you see it in society, the way people treat each other in restaurants, at the, um, you know, pub public services, like trying to get your um, driver's license, whatever you see in society... We see it in the health system. We are no, we health people are no different from the rest of society. So as we think about patient centeredness, person centeredness, respect, dignity, empathy, I think we do need to. We cannot work in a silo. We have to recognize that the inequities we see in society are reflected, and we we the, in the professions have to 
work harder to overcome that. Um, when people are most vulnerable, it's the hardest time to also be receiving that type of disrespect and abuse, especially, as you say, young women, teenagers who don't even... Healthy teenagers who get pregnant have probably never interacted with the health system. This is their first substantive interaction and they get treated so poorly because they are pregnant. Um, Pregnancy is not a crime. Maybe they're not married, but being an unmarried, pregnant young woman is not a crime either, you know? So, anyway... (laughs) So if I can just add to that, Nana, so, so I, really, I really appreciate what you're saying. Um, so in this ecosystem, um, encountering what you bring into the interaction with a vulnerable patient. Um, so we introduced this thing, the, the patients in maternity care became respectful maternity care. Um, and it does come to something called values clarification. So we have attached, when we introduced the, the termination of pregnancy service in our country, we coupled it with values clarification. And it has been one of the most powerful things we could do. Because you're right, as somebody comes in and you say, okay, I'm going to be responsible for giving care to vulnerable people, especially vulnerable teenagers. What is my value set? And actually go through a whole set of almost desensitizing people from the values that, that of society that's reflected in them. It's understanding judgment, moving judgment to curiosity, understanding um, impatience and harshness to kindness and compassion. It's been a very powerful thing to try and do that. But as you say, now we're doing it as an ecosystem, as a, as an ecosystem within an ecosystem. It does require us to have that with community structures, Paul, where we have that kind of conversation with our community leaders and community activists or whoever to actually move to what is called a respectful ecosystem within which you locate the experience of care as received by the most vulnerable in our system. So that just leads me to think about a particular question. Those really high-level measures, they're often really quantitative. So, for example, was oxytocin given or not? But actually, you've been talking about this much more holistic approach to quality. And is that actually harder to measure? And I'm wondering, what does that mean for organisations like WHO, which are trying to improve standards? That, that's really a passion of mine. And that is how um, governance plays itself out. So you would have heard me talk about how we locate service delivery reform or service redesign, but it has to be accompanied by governance redesign. And the bigger thing for me from a systems perspective is how agencies at multiple levels, levels relook its role in supporting what should happen at the front line with the vulnerable woman in the context with the provider. So it does require national, regional, international, global entities to ask a question. If we put the person at the center, the person-centered care, where it happens becomes the primary point in the system, not where I'm sitting, wherever that is. 
your job is to say, if I am then moving from, which is something that I had to do actively in my job, I was a clinician, I moved from frontline to middle level to senior management. When I got to senior management, I had to reshape the governance orientation where I was from control to enablement, from strict rules to broad parameters, from instructing to, en to creating capability. So there's a whole range of reorientation. And, you know, I can get passionate and carried away because I would like to tell multinational agencies what they should be doing. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking openly about it because we have um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation working with us, USAID funding. We're working with the WHO. We're working with a range of entities. Many of those entities have actually welcomed us, asking the question, how are you enabling us? What do we need from you to support us to create this ecosystem that people can flourish in? And do you have an answer? <laughs> My answer is that the broad parameters is one, um, I think Paul mentioned it earlier, or somebody mentioned it, that is, can we all agree what the outcomes is we want to see? And then trust local enablement and support with their efforts to reach the desired outcomes and allow that parameters for for enablement. That's why I'm a strong proponent of saying allow the system to self-organize, a little bit of stability, a little bit of innovation, enabling so that the desired things can, can be achieved. An assumption that somebody in a, in a poor resourced area gets up in the morning to give poor care is an assumption that must be dispelled from the center. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about um, the enabling factor. Listening to you, Keith. I hear two two reflections from what Keith said. <clears throat> the first one is an example, and this is where I think um, some of our quality gaps come from. So, for example, we have a district hospital in a rural area that is staffed by one physician and several midwives. The midwives might be six or seven who run shifts. But there's one physician, and that's the only person who can do a C-section. That person happens to be a young person, let's say a man, um, whose, whose family is about maybe 100 miles away. So some weekends, this person goes home to family. And during that weekend, there's no C-section coverage. Yet it's a district hospital, and the district hospital is set up to provide at least C-section uh, mm -hmm. coverage blood transfusion coverage, that's what doctors do. So the question, when you, when you I mean, it's, I worked in rural areas in northern Ghana, we experienced this so many times. When you get to an environment like that, where has the system failed you? Is it the individual provider who's not there that weekend? Is it the fact that our system isn't set up to have some coverage for this individual so that he can go home once, maybe once a month or whatever the frequency is. And while he's gone, we have C-section coverage at the hospital. So the family doesn't have to travel another 50 kilometers to the next district hospital. So I think these are the systems issues. And those are the things that um, I think we need to give room for 
optimization and, as you said, entrepreneurial thinking around how we solve that. So that's the story part. The other thing that I was really, really fascinated by, Keith, is your framing around, I think you called it operational leadership, entrepreneurial leadership, enabling leadership. And I think it it applies at a... um, at a facility level, at a district level, but it also applies at the international level, as you were just saying, as I thought about, you know, quality control, which is all the things we know we should be doing. Let's get them as good as possible, high reliability, 95, 99%. That's quality control, and that's operational leadership. Most people come to work to do what they're supposed to do. That's majority of the people, I would say 80, 90%. There's a very small group of people who are stepping back to say, hmm, we're doing everything, it's not going as well as we'd like. What can we test? What can we do differently? And that's where some of the um, localization, contextualization that Keith talked about comes in. And then the enablers are the people who allow great resources, shift things around, redesign the system to allow the system to go over. So I really like your framing because it fits very nicely in terms of quality planning, quality control, and quality improvement, which is the entrepreneurial stuff. But we don't want to get too carried away with in quality improvement in little pockets yeah. if we can feed it back into the overall enabling environment to systematize and sustain. So I think that the analogy at um, facility district, regional level, provincial level actually applies to the international context as well. Uh, we are one, one, one world. We're all working towards uh, sustainable development goals. So we do need governance at international level. And all, all the countries, ministries of health contribute to setting the SDGs. So it's not like, you know, people are imposing things on us. We do it collectively. But then how do we translate the things that are in the SDGs to national level, to regional district level? That's where um, some of the entrepreneurial leadership and operational leadership has to come to bear. So Paul, is that something that you're trying to do every day in your work? Yes, I think your your challenge is how does global level of big systems, quantitative um, evidence, you know, influences. Now, when it comes to quality, I had a challenge when I when, when I was working in quality because I love quantitative data as an epidemiologist. I wanted to count numbers, and I realized that subjective views were very um, um, could be very misleading. And so, 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 I'm excited about the way Keith is trying to use quantitative and qualitative methods. And so, if you look at the global level aggregated data, quantitative stuff. Most most of these global standards work. For example, the models of quality improvement they work. But again, it comes to Nanette's um, points about how do we get them to the point of care level. Um, for us in Ghana, we realize that just training, training health staff, and you know giving them the knowledge was not enough, and we had to use a model of coaching visits. And so it's about translating what is at the, at the top level, at the global, national level, translating it in ways that can reach the health staff at the point of care level. So coaching visits and sending out quality improvement coaches down there was very effective to translating all these global standards, big global standards, right down there to make sure they were effective and working. In places where we couldn't do as much coaching, bringing people together and just training them you know, was not efficient. And so there's still big investments to make, you know, in paying attention to bringing these standards right down to a facility level. And that's why when it comes to quality improvements uh, or quality of care, research 
even looks tricky because once you mention research, it, it turns off the, the, the clinicians. And how do we encourage them to understand that even quality improvement processes are not researchers. It's just your own way of using what you are gathering, the data you are collecting, and just looking at the process and just trying to improve outcomes at your basic level. So global standards are great. They are workable, but it's not helping the healthcare worker at the point of care to the doctor who is so busy and the midwife who is running everywhere to contextualize it right down to their level to know to know that these are not abstract global things but real workable things if you can translate it in your working environment. Um, Keith, earlier on you were talking about how individual doctors and nurses are working in constrained settings and they're sort of going into emergency mode yeah. and maybe being in that frame of mind makes it even harder to think about how you're trying to improve things. So how are you in South Africa working with that tension? So that is a, a crucial point for us. Um, we are going through one of those austerity-induced um, anxiety periods currently. So our financial and fiscal lookout is, is as bad as it's been, and we're facing some significant resource constraints. So the most pressurized frontline workers the biggest immediate reaction is we're going to become even more overwhelmed. So the easiest way to describe it to you, uh, yeah, I'm a, you can see I'm a very visual person, right? Uh, but the easiest way to describe it is probably applying the words of a scarcity mindset and actively and intentionally moving that to an abundance mindset. And what I mean by that it is working with everyone in the context that I've described and make them feel that they are part of a bigger system. So I think, Nana, your, your, your example of the individual doctor that must do the seizures and must go home in the week, on the weekend. In our setting, we would have encouraged that person to say, which is the next geographic area? And how does the geographic area come together? to make sure that there's always cesarean section cover at that institution. It's just the reorientation of saying to people, you are not alone. You actually are part of a bigger system. And the more you are connected with others, the more you are able to move from what's in front of you and the pressure and the emergency response to a little bit more proactive and a move that way. Now, I can tell you, I'm saying that to you in a context where it is extremely difficult to take people in a, in a very pressured situation and not to think of just in what's in front of them. Because a scarcity mindset is an incredibly powerful thing. And to change a scarcity mindset to abundance mindset is a change process that we are going through now, which is saying relationships, connections. Actually, if we pool all our resources, we have so much more than what we think we're losing by not having enough resources for where we are, including community resources in our setting, the private sector, other sectors. So, Duncan, it's a long answer, but it's a very intentional answer from our side that we believe part of us being proactive is getting people encouraged to think like that. 
You know, I, w- I was thinking about what Keith was saying around scarcity mindset, and it's interesting. And IHI works across low-income countries, middle-income countries, and high-income countries. And everywhere we go, we hear about resource constraints in one way or the other. And I think COVID has exacerbated that because the workforce has, is so exhausted. There's been high turnover, and um, people have re- retired early or resigned because of the of the burnout, etc. So the resource constraints is 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 real. Uh, globally. And I think the scarcity mindset, what it does, it can paralyze us. And what we try to do is, um, it's, it, it, it may sound, um, and it's not naive, but there are lots of opportunities for redesign within a scarce environment. Are we doing things optimally? Could we redesign to do it better? And I'll give a quick example around, you know, long wait times. Is it about bringing in more human resources or bringing in more beds? Or are we, should we go upstream and figure out why we have long wait times? Could we extend our hours or change our hours to meet the needs of the, of the population? Perhaps if we opened on Saturday mornings, closed a little early on weekdays and opened on Saturday mornings, we could reduce some of the, the flow issues or access issues. So I think it's really about redesign to, to optimize within the resources we have rather than keep looking for more resources to come in an environment where the fiscal constraints are so great. So Paul, I'd like to leave you with the last word on this. What are your thoughts on really trying to make this change in resource constrained settings? So I think that as we um, forge together as countries and um, globally towards quality of care, um, we need to consider the changing times, the geopolitical issues, emerging climate change issues, um, the general stress on, on, on global fi- um, financing frameworks. We need to approach quality of care much differently. Um, if we're in a hurry to set targets, we may disappoint ourselves because the dynamics are changing very fast. It's no more a straight line. And I think that globally, we need to understand it takes a process. And so uh, we have increasing temperatures, we have migrant groups coming, we have emerging and re-emerging diseases. All of these things have a focus on affecting quality of care in, in the broad landscape. And I think that um, countries and the subnational, globally and national systems and subnational levels have to now incorporate emergencies into planning and funding and general implementation of quality of care systems. Otherwise, our general idea of creating inputs and focus on process and measuring outcomes might fail us if we don't put all of this in the, in the perspective of global um, transformation transformations. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to Keith Clute, Nana Chumdanso and Paul Jaini Adu talk about systematically improving care in resource-constrained settings. This discussion is part of our Quality of Care series made in collaboration with the World Health Organization and the World Bank. All of the open access articles are available on bmj.com slash qualityofcare. I'm Emma Veach and I'll be back soon with more of these podcasts talking about quality improvement around the world. So make sure that you subscribe so you don't miss out on those. Bye for now.